Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I handle outreach at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. And this podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. And today we're going to talk about AI or artificial intelligence and specifically about the culture of fear surrounding this technology. And unfortunately, in the minds of many, including, frankly, some policymakers, AI is magical and all powerful. It's poised to do all sorts of transformative things, including matching or even surpassing human capabilities, eliminating most jobs. And and if you believe in Elon Musk, uh, actually imprisoning humanity in gorilla-like enclaves in the mountains. Uh, So we're here to talk about why all of that's nonsense. And we're going to talk to veteran AI researcher, statistician, and AI investor Steve Schwartz. He is the author of the upcoming book, Evil Robots, Killer Computers, and Other Myths, The Truth About AI and the Future of Humanity, which is out in February. Welcome, Steve. Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Can you start off maybe small by explaining how AI works in simple terms? You have a lot of experience with this. Sure. So there, there, there are two major types of AI, machine learning and natural language processing. Machine learning is really an evolved form of what we used to call statistics, but it's responsible for most of the major AI inventions like facial recognition and machine translation. Natural language processing enables us to talk to our smartphones, and in some cases makes use of that machine learning technology. Um, so, so let me spend a minute and just talk about machine learning itself. Most machine learning starts with a table of data in which one column contains the correct label. So for example, in a facial recognition application, each row in the table will contain the individual dots of a facial image that are known as pixels, plus the name of the person in the image. And there'll be millions of rows of images in the table. The job of the machine learning system is to learn a function that relates the pixels in each row to the correct name. And once that function is trained, that function can be used to correctly name images that weren't in the database. And that's how facial recognition works. And that's how pretty much most of the AI systems work. Um, But it's important to note that that function that can name, put names to faces, can't do anything else. It can't distinguish dogs from cats. It can't translate languages. And, And more importantly, there's absolutely no reason to characterize that function as human-like thinking or human-like intelligence. So, Steve, one of the things I really enjoyed about your book, and I I really encourage all the listeners to pick up a copy as soon as it comes out, is, um, first of all, it it was really a good primer, uh, me being not a computer scientist, but knowing somewhat about this. It's a very nice primer. You, You go through sort of how it actually works in the various applications and then and, and then how it's used in things like driving and, and other areas. Um, but I thought one of your key points in the book is what you just said. It's not human intelligence. Uh, we released a report a few years ago called It's Going to Kill Us and Other Myths About AI. And, and you have these pundits like Ray Kurzweil talking about the singularity. In other words, all of a sudden, these computers are smarter than humans and the rise of what they call AGI or artificial general intelligence, artificial super intelligence when the Terminator comes and kills us all. And, you know, this is 
good for peddling TED Talks, but you know, ultimately it's computer science nonsense. Uh, but it's sort of become what people think about it. And you do a really good job of explaining what AI is and what it isn't. And uh, could you say a little bit more about that? AI is, is producing amazing things that are having big impacts on society, from facial recognition to translating languages in, in, in foreign countries. Uh, we can talk to our smartphones to some extent. Um, uh, but as I mentioned before, each one of those things is a single function that can only do one thing and really has is nothing like human-level intelligence that can do a lot of things. Every AI researcher agrees that the current forms of machine learning are a dead end, not when it comes to producing more and more you know, great inventions, um, but they're a dead end when it comes to producing human-like intelligence that Elon Musk or Stephen Hawking or Ray Kurzweil are, are, are worried about. AI will never produce machines with that, that level of intelligence. That said, there are, there are many AI researchers out there, brilliant, brilliant researchers, who have brand new ideas for how to build intelligence machines like that. And you know, I, I have a little bit of a historical perspective on this. Um, I've got enough gray hair to be able to, uh, to make this comment. Uh, but I moved to Connecticut in the late 1970s to join one of the major artificial intelligence laboratories at Yale University. It, Back then, we really thought our ideas would result in intelligent machines. So did researchers at dozens of universities around the world who had their own ideas, but none of them panned out. It is a really hard problem. And there's no reason to believe that today's ideas are any more likely to work than the ones we had in the 1980s. Today's technology, today's AI capabilities are impressive engineering feats, but there's, there's no reason to take them as the slightest bit of evidence that the new ideas have a chance or are any more likely to succeed than the old ones. So we don't need to worry about the Terminator ex exterminating humankind, and we don't need to worry about robots that can read books and take courses and learn all our jobs. It goes back to the... Uh... The original AI conference, uh, she's back in the 50s. The Dartmouth, yeah. Yeah, the Dartmouth one. And, and even back then, they were, they were saying that a, a number of the folks there said, it's really only about a year or two from now, and we'll get this. And that's, you know, it's, it's a little bit like nuclear fusion, where everybody says, another 10 years, another 20 years. And it, it just has never, never happened. You know, one of the things that I think is the problem here is a lot of, first of all, I think the, I think the problem is also the, is the terminology you know, calling it AI, it makes it sound like it, it has human intelligence as opposed to, you know, machine capabilities. I was struck, I think it was last week over the holidays, I think you might have seen the Boston Robotics Dancing Robots. Anyway, they're really great robots and, and, and they now can dance. Uh, and a lot of people on Twitter were like, holy geez, this, they're close now. You know, the Terminators, yeah. if they yeah. can dance, yeah. they, can, they can kill us. Yeah. Just because they have a couple more joints. <laughs> yeah. have a couple more arm joints than other robots. Yeah, you yeah. Know, and, and it's it's amazing to me because you know five years ago, if you saw videos of of the Boston Robotics robots, I, I think that was Boston Robotics. Yeah, you, you'd see you'd see robots. They try to walk down a path and open a door, and they take a step and fall over and hit their head on the door. And now they can dance, and and that's really amazing. I mean, that's just that's just great applications of technology. They've just found better ways of learning functions that enable them to dance. And it's, it's impressive technology, but, but there is really no intelligence there. 
Yeah, there's nobody home, as they would say. Nobody home, right? Yeah, no ghost. In the, the The original name of my book was going to be "There's No Ghost in the Machine," but the editors rejected that because you wouldn't be able to find it on Amazon. <laughs> there was a famous book written in in uh, I want to say 1970 by Arthur Kessler named "The Ghost in the Machine." Yes, of course. But very few people would get that illusion, so probably a good point for your editors. Yeah. But people really have a hard time with this concept, and I think the more education that occurs is maybe not the maybe not for the best, and I say that because we hear a lot of talk about the need for AI transparency, kind of based on the notion that unless we know how the AI engine actually works or the algorithm actually works, then we shouldn't trust it. I think that is a, a policymaker's stance, too. But in fact, studies show that the more people know how AI works, the less they trust it. And you talk about this and the fact that some predictive algorithms must remain secret and give you give the example of the IRS in your book. Can you say more about that? Sure. There's a lot of visibility around the need for transparency. And the uh, European Union has led the way in regulation towards transparency. Um, the U.S. and other companies are following fast. And I don't think it'll be very long before there are some pretty strict regulations in place that, you know, we're going to start worrying about whether they're doing as much harm as good. You know, there was, a, there was an interesting study that looked at discrimination. The researchers had people evaluating ads for jobs, and they looked at the difference between the evaluators looking at resumes with people's names that were clearly African-American names versus white names. And they found there was a, a big bias against the African-American names for, the, for what were basically the same resumes. So there's really no question that people are often biased. Some are, some are prejudiced. Some may have unconscious biases. And AI systems are a possible solution to those human biases. And if we throw out all AI systems uh, because they can be based on biased data and make biased decisions, then we leave ourselves back in the situation of relying on people not to be biased, and we know that that's, that that's a problem. So it's a, it's a very difficult issue, and I, I think that's, that's where we're headed, um, and I think that's a bit unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, people oftentimes in in these debates, people compare a technology to perfection rather than compare it to what is prior to it. And in many cases, how decisions are made are they're made by people with unconscious or sometimes even conscious biases. And the advantage of an AI system, especially as you point out in your book, if you are if you work hard on the data set to make sure the data set is representative of reality you can really have systems that are less biased than, uh, than, than maybe what a person might do. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I, would, I, would, I would prefer to see the, the regulation focused on um, requirements around unbiased data sets, because I think that's where, where we'd really find the sweet spot. Yeah. Our framework on this was, was rather than mandate algorithmic. In some cases, as you point out, some countries or, or policy advocates have advocated that you actually have to turn over your, your source code, um, which obviously has big problems around IP. Also, it sort of, what does it tell you? It doesn't really tell you anything because of the, how they, the, way the, the way the learning, deep learning works. But our view is these systems need to be accountable. If they say they're going to do X, uh, they should do X. And that's really what we should be focused on. Absolutely. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I think accountability is a, is a great regulatory framework for a lot of the AI issues. You know, my, my, one of my big soapboxes is self-driving cars. I think there, there's a movement, there's so much enthusiasm about self-driving cars that I think governments are actually starting to consider removing liability from the automakers. There's a there's a, a recent article about the UK starting to think about that, and, and it's 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 really very very scary because, in my view, if you have a car that's driving itself, if I can sit in the car and read a book, and that car gets in an accident, I should be able to blame the manufacturer. And if I can't blame the manufacturer, what's to prevent the manufacturer from putting these cars out before they're really safe? I know what you're saying, uh, but at the other hand, one again, it goes back to this question of what are we comparing to? Because, you know, I I wrote a report on actually it's funny. I used to be at the Congressional Office of Technology Assessment, and 25 years ago we did a report on self-driving cars that Congress asked us to do, and we said minimum 25 years from now. <laughs> and everybody at the time, no, no, very quickly, and no, no, a long, long way away, but. Clearly, when we get to, I mean, I don't even know that we'll ever get to what's called level five, where you just fall asleep in the back seat and in a snowstorm, but we could get to level four, where the car itself helps avoid accidents. And anyway, if we get to that level, we will save a lot of lives. And I guess, in our view, I guess we'd want a, you'd want a regulatory posture that would enable and promote that with this assumption that there will be some accidents. And I guess the question would be, is the accident caused because of a faulty algorithm or car, or is it just simply because you can't avoid all accidents? Yeah, in my view, there's a a fundamental technology weakness of self-driving cars. Let me explain. Most of us have encountered unexpected phenomena while driving. You know, a flood makes the road difficult or impossible to navigate. A section of new asphalt has no lines. You notice or suspect black ice. Drivers are fishtailing, trying to get up an icy hill. You know, we all have stories about unique, let's call them edge cases. And we don't learn how to handle these unexpected situations in driving school. Instead, we use our common sense. We use our common sense to anticipate. If we hear an ice cream truck in the neighborhood, we know to look out for children running towards the truck. The problem with self-driving vehicles is nobody knows how to build common sense into computers. So what happens when a self-driving vehicle encounters a situation it hasn't been programmed for? It's either going to crash or stop and cause a traffic jam. Now, a few years ago in Moscow, they had a self-driving car competition and a car conked out at a stoplight and all the cars just stopped and waited. You know, a human driver would say, oh yeah, that car must be conked out and go around them but it caused a three-hour traffic jam. So these edge cases are, are really problematic for self-driving cars. We can have self-driving cars on a, on a corporate campus where you've got a self-driving shuttle that goes from point A to point B. You can identify all the edge cases and program them in, either using machine learning or conventional programming. You know, Maybe in a small area of a city, you might be able to do it with taxis or delivery vehicles. But how are you going to do it with a consumer vehicle that can that can encounter so many different edge cases. You know, if if every every driver in the world has had a unique experience, then let's say there are I forget how many drivers in the world there are, two or three billion, um, or maybe it was six billion. I, I forget the number. You know, if there are six billion different edge cases, how are these self-driving 
car company is going to, they'll have to identify every one of those 6 billion edge cases and individually program them in or create machine learning for them. That's going to be very difficult. If they can't do that, the result is going to be crashes and traffic jams. So I, I, I don't, I don't think the answer is that it's necessarily going to be better than what we have now. I think it could be a lot worse. I ride my bike. Well, when we, when I used to go to work uh, pre-COVID, I worked downtown, live in the suburbs of D.C., and I would ride my bike to work. I've been doing it for 25 years. And, uh, you know, knock on wood, I was doing pretty well until last summer or two summers ago when I was riding almost in front of the White House on Pennsylvania Avenue. And a you know, cab driver wasn't looking and, and turned a U-turn and, and, and hit me. Uh, and, and, you know, I had a concussion and, and luckily I, I was, you know, I survived with no damage, long-term damage. But if he had had level four, in other words, where the car sensed this, that he was going to hit me in automatic braking, he wouldn't have hit me. And so I think it's what I would, how I would look at it is level five, where we, where we start taking our hands off the wheel and go to sleep would be probably be a big problem. But getting to that other point where you sort of have automatic reactions of the car to assist and complement the driver would probably be a good thing. Yeah, and and, and that's a le- that's actually a level two capability. Level three is where you can take your you, you can watch a movie or read a book, although it, it's only in limited areas. So it, it's starting with level three that I have that that problem. You know, in the uh, UK, what they're talking about doing is saying, well. We're going to make sure that if somebody's reading a book, they have to be able to take over within 10 to 15 seconds or else it's their fault. 10, I mean, 10 to 15 seconds, the car <laughs> realizes it's in trouble. It says you have to take over the wheel right now. Rob's toast in that case. And, and now you got, you, you're going to wait 10 seconds? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I have a Tesla. You know, I, I love the Tesla. Um, uh, and it, you know, I, I probably run it in autopilot, pro, you know, maybe uh, 90% of the time that I'm driving. But that other 10% of the time, it would be in accidents. You know, and if, I, if, if I'm going by somebody on a bicycle, I don't trust it. I'll, I'll so take you've, over. You've forgiven Elon Musk for his slander against your industry? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, yeah. So, no, I I think we agree on that, Steve. That's that's interesting. Let me sort of maybe jump in, maybe a final or second last final question. You know, I think the struggle in the U.S. now, uh, I I think Europe has crossed the Rubicon on where they are on AI. They they don't like it. They, They want to constrain it. You have to get permission from the government to even come out with an algorithm potentially. And again, that's not to say that the that the alternative is just libertarianism and, and nothing. I liked how you addressed the point of your book, like for example, on facial recognition. It's not that you, you I think, and I won't quote you directly, but you know, facial recognition is not an inherently bad technology. It can be used in bad ways, as the Chinese are doing, or it could be used in ways with set of rules and guidelines and protections and rules about data and how long you keep it. And, when you can use it for an arrest, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, maybe you can just say a few more words on that, how you see that. Yeah, no, I, I, think that's, I think that's absolutely right. Facial recognition technology can have great benefits for society. It's, it's been used to catch child molesters. It's been used to catch terrorists. But then on the downside, you have the discrimination aspects that we talked about. If it's used to detain terrorists at airports, 
and it makes mistakes and it makes a lot more mistakes on minorities, that's unacceptable. So, but the answer to that, I think, is better technology and better data data sets, not not banning it altogether. And then you have what they're doing in China. So the the Chinese government is putting together a Big Brother 1984 society by linking up virtually all the cameras, the security cameras in the country, and using AI to monitor people. So dissidents, they know everything that a dissident does. They, you know, they've even used it to uh, catch toilet paper thieves. So, so that's, that's a level of invasion of privacy that absolutely won't, won't be acceptable in the United States. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll see some regulation against that level of, uh, of privacy. We're already seeing a moratorium on the use of facial recognition in law enforcement and, and government. Most of the major players won't sell their technology to law enforcement. We're, we're seeing lots and lots of regulation from the FTC to I forget, I have a list somewhere of, uh, you know, there's probably at least a dozen governmental agencies that have put out regulations about facial recognition. So I think what we're seeing in this country is that the, the government is responding to people's concerns in, in, a, in a fairly effective way. You know, they may go overboard in some cases, but uh, I suspect we'll, we'll land where we need to land, where we'll, we'll be able to use the technology, you know, but the people who use it will be responsible for the correct usage, as you mentioned, Rob. Uh, and I, I, I think the government will hopefully enact some some rules and regulations that will 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 prevent itself from doing what China is doing. Yeah, I mean, I'm maybe a little more optimistic than you are. I, I don't. I mean, if we want to be like China, we don't need technology to do it. We're not China, and whether we have technology or not, they have guns. We they might kill people. We don't. I guess to me, the the uh, we've always sort of had the framework of don't ban the technology, put put a set of rules around it. And, and, and where there could be abuses, put the rules there. But one of the challenges, I think, is how the media covers this. Like, for example, uh, NIST has this facial recognition challenge every year, and they did it the last time they did it. And, and they had, I don't know, 100 facial FR systems that they evaluated. And it turns out that like the top 10 were, were basically had zero bias on gender or race, zero. In some cases, they were a little more accurate, actually, for minorities. But at 90% of them, let's say, you know, they had bias. And so the story from the media was facial recognition systems biased. What the story should have been was don't buy those other ones, you know, only buy the ones that don't have right. any bias. It's, it's like testing cars and two of them are bad. And you're like, oh, cars aren't safe. Exactly. So I think that's part of the challenge is we should just say you got to use the right systems. You got to use effective systems and not shoddy ones. Yeah, I'm 100% in agreement. I think what that, what that study showed was we know how to, we know how to make data sets. That are yeah. unbiased. Yeah, and you know, not everybody did it in that. In that, but yeah, but we know how. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Steve, can you tell our listeners where they can find you and follow your work? Absolutely. So I maintain a website that has a lot of information on AI, including a fifteen chapter, uh, four hundred page AI one hundred one book on online. We can include that in our show notes too. Great. Yeah, that's at AIperspectives.com. Steve, thank you so much for being here. Really great conversation. I look forward to reading the book in full when it comes out. I sort of skimmed it, and I really enjoyed it. Look forward to reading the whole thing, and I encourage our listeners to do the same.
Oh, yeah, likewise. I really enjoyed the conversation, and it's great meeting you both, Rob and Jackie. Thank you. And that is it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at itifdc. We'll have more episodes and great guests lined up. New episodes drop every other Monday, so we hope you'll continue to tune in.